Hey, everybody. How are you? Uh, welcome to Smodcastle. I'm Kevin Smith. Uh, you, tonight, you guys have gathered to watch a uh, movie. This week's movie, uh, Southland Tales. I'm tempted to call it Smouthland Tales. But uh, I'd like to introduce you to one of the most clever and talented filmmakers I've ever met in my life, and a hell of a fucking nice guy. And a dude we're going to get to know over the course of the next hour before you watch his picture. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Richard Kelly. Hello, hello. Um, hey, let's let's do a little background, a little detail work, man. You came from Virginia, is that correct? I came all the way from... Uh, well, I was born in, in Newport News, Virginia. Uh-huh. And then we, That's the name of an actual town? Newport News, Virginia. It's actually where we shot, uh, where NASA, the NASA sequences in the box were all shot, right where I grew up. And um, I moved. And what to, was that about? You had access to NASA over. We got full access to NASA, where, where my dad worked for over ten years. Are you allowed little, to tell people that your dad worked in NASA, or does the government show up, shoot a <laughs> fucking blow dart in your neck, or something? You know, it was like when I was growing up as a kid. It was like it was always he. There was a lot of stuff he couldn't tell us that he worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when he left NASA, like later on in life, he went and he worked on stuff for like the smokeless cigarette, like when Philip. Morris yeah, yeah. and Reynolds Tobacco were both... That movie, Barbarians at yeah, the Gate. they were both developing rival uh, versions of the smokeless cigarette. And my dad worked for ye- for several years with his robotics company that he formed after he left NASA to help manufacture the smokeless cigarette. And he couldn't tell us that he was working on it until they abandoned, they pulled the plug on the whole thing after spending like a billion dollars on it because... They spend all this money on this smokeless cigarette that like cooks tobacco on the inside, kind of like a hookah. Uh-huh. I don't. I know you probably wouldn't know anything about that. Not but, at all. I'm not familiar it, with how it, those it things cook, work. It cooks the tobacco on the inside, and then you inhale the vapor. Uh-huh. And they, they they finally figured out how to build these things, and they put a bunch of fifty smokers in a room behind a glass wall, and they tested it, and it got like an F. Yeah, it got it was like worse than new coke. It they was were a like, disaster. They said, if I remember the line from the movie correctly, they said, "Smells like shit, tastes like a fart." Exactly, <laughs> it was a disaster. But like they had to figure out how to build it. And my dad's company, um, at the time, they helped put these things together and manufacture them. So somewhere there's like a gigantic warehouse full of smokeless cigarettes and smokeless cigarette making machines. Get out of here, yeah. really? Yeah, I mean, so much money got spent. And, you and your dad was involved. Yeah, his company that he formed well after he left NASA called Jewett Automation. They used to build machines that would assemble dustbusters very quickly or jam a bunch of Eskimo pies into chocolate at the speed of light, you know, just to, <laughs> you know, manufacturing automation kind of stuff. Right, that, right. That became, you know, that built throughout the 80s and into the 90s. Your dad was like Doc Brown from Back yeah. to the Future and shit. He, yeah, absolutely. Like you never had to feed the dog something <laughs> automatically, a robot. Yeah, you know, we were, we the, were the. F- <laughs> We were the first uh, family on the block to have a, a personal computer. We had like the very first Apple. Really? We got like the Apple II, the Apple II Plus. We like upgraded, you know, every, you know, six months when, the, when a new one came out. So it was definitely like my dad was like always on the pushing on the cutting edge of technology and computer science and stuff like that. Did you think that had anything to do with the filmmaking bug that you got bit by or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think growing up with my dad, seeing him, you know, coming home because when you in the box, it was exactly like 
James Marsden, you know, he would drive down to Newport News from Richmond by the time we got to Richmond, and then he left NASA. But it was always realizing that he was working on all of these pioneering new patents, and they did stuff for little kids. Um, that NASA does a lot of work other than the space exploration, but they did stuff for little kids with cleft palates uh-huh. when they're born with their lip. You know, split open. Yeah, my father. My father was born help, with a cleft palate. To help using optics to help figure out how to repair that stuff. That was in the seventies. They they had a lot of uh, patents and stuff they would do for medicine and different fields of science that mm. people don't really realize. So it was definitely it, it was very inspiring knowing that my dad was part of uh, this amazing uh, scientific experience down at NASA. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence to really try to be ambitious, you know, and sometimes that's maybe been uh, a negative thing is, is having exceeding ambition. But I guess you try to get that out of your system, like when, you, when you're younger. But um, do you think, have you felt uh, ambitious? You mean in terms of the quality of the work you feel like? Well, I think trying to you, like because you have certainly gone for it yeah, many times, so yeah. much so that a lot of us are left behind. Going, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> I know, I know. That's that's kind of what, the, what I'm talking about in terms of ambition, and um, you know, particularly I think with a, with a film like Southland Tales, where where it was like a film that we shot in 29 days, and it was this you know a 17 million dollar budget that we probably needed twice that three times that to really do what we wanted but just trying to do so much in a, in a compressed amount of time and then realizing that the story needed to spill over into graphic novels and, and into websites and and uh so i think that kind of you know i'm used to biting off more than i can chew right. and whether or not i can swallow it without like choking to death you know before someone drags me off um, yeah, you know. you're a spitter, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> what um, What is the... You were... Uh, the first film uh, that I know of is Donnie Darko. Did mm-hmm. you do student work before that? Did you go to film school? I went to USC film school. Did you? I did. Um, so you've been out here for a while. Yeah. I, I got an art scholarship um, in, in, when I was in Virginia. I, I got an art scholarship to USC. I came out here. It was literally like the pilot of an Aaron Spelling show. I showed up... Got off the plane with two suitcases. I'd never visited the state of California. My parents weren't with me. I literally walked onto the USC campus, had never visited it before. And I was like knocking on the dorm room door, met my roommate, had never set foot in the state of California before because I got this art scholarship. Right. And I was like, wow, California, you know, gee willikers. You know, I felt like (laughs) that, you know, East Coast, you know, dorky kid, uh, you know, who shows up at the TV pilot and meets all the crazy California people. And they were like, bend over, motherfucker. (laughs) Welcome to California. No! (laughs) You know, and it was... was, And that's where Donnie Darko came from. You know, and it was, it was, you know, I joined a fraternity and I did you really, I, I you did. don't seem like a guy that would rush. I a fraternity. know people, it's people are shocked, but I, I didn't know anyone and I wanted to, to, to meet people and have fun. And I quickly changed up my, my general education classes to start taking film, uh, courses as a non-major and started trying to figure out how to get into the film school. Cause USC is very cutthroat. It's very competitive. It's very hard to get into. I mean, mm. you've got kids who have like. You know, Jack Nicholson writes them a recommendation to try to get in, you know, and like all they, they have like famous people writing them recommendations. They've they made films when they were like five years old and right. stuff. And a lot of times the, the film uh, program there, they deny you. 
they want like raw artistic people that they can mold and that they can teach. So my sort of art portfolio and my naivete worked in my favor and I got in. So, and when you say art portfolio, you mean like graphic design and paint, painting, drawing? drawing and painting. It ended up being a lot of pencil artwork. Like when you see Donnie Darko, all the drawings that Donnie does in the movie, like the, the illustration of the rabbit that his mom sees, right. The uh, the thing in the classroom that he and Jenna Malone and the baby a lot of the the illustrations of the movie I did all those so for the movie and stuff so I grew right. up uh, you know illustrating and had uh, a background in, in doing a lot of painting and 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 pencil stuff like my parents they put me in art class when I was five well oh, you know? Jesus so they were like really aggressive about pushing me into into the arts they must have wanted you out of the house so they could they fuck. wanted me to. Get- <laughs> They wanted me as a parent. That's the only reason I send my kid to camp. I'm like, get her out of here so we can screw during the day. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you went to SC, did you um, did you uh, did you make shorts? I made uh, five Super Eight shorts. The first one was called the uh, the Vomiteer, uh, about a guy who couldn't stop vomiting. Right on, man. And it was just really an excuse to just stage a bunch of puke scenes <laughs> to see how I could make the puke explode out of one of my buddy's mouths right. um, onto different people, into people's faces, like all over. It was just a truly moronic uh, exercise in vomiting. How was it received? Um, it actually, my teacher at the time, she was this woman, I don't remember her, her name, but I think she showed up either kind of drunk or a little hungover to a lot of the classes. <laughs> and she had to get up and physically walk out of the room because it, she, she's vomiting on camera makes her sick. Right. So it almost made my teacher vomit. Um, Strong and it was, it was truly, I think, just wanting to do something. It, there was a story to it and there was technique to it, believe it or not. Um, but I think I just... Um, was trying to be as unpretentious as possible because mm-hmm. a lot of the film, a lot of the student films at the time at USC were all about suicide and homelessness and um, very depressing, ang- angst-ridden kind of stuff. And I, th- I think I just wanted to experiment with technique and puke and puke, no, <laughs> and just be be as as um, as unpretentious as possible, but also you know push push you know my i wanted to learn because I, right. I had never picked up a camera before until i got to, to usc you were like i'm so, not gonna deal with pretension now there's plenty of time plenty for that of time to on. get really pretentious which, when you know, uh, sure how did you get to donnie darko how do you want because that movie had a substantial budget for four and a half million in the year 2000 we were just having a conversation um back backstage about what inflation what, what that would mean in terms of inflation but um i wrote donnie darko after i graduated and and um, you have that pan- that moment of panic after you graduate from college. Everyone uh-huh. does because you think you know if you have student loans. I luckily didn't have student loans, but I I clearly had this film degree, which there's no um, plan of how you're going to pull this off. Right. And I remember you were probably maxing out credit cards to make clerks, and, and I didn't I didn't have a script. I'd never written a script before in my life, so I I literally just sat down and I wrote Donnie Darko in about two months, mm-hmm. and all the, I gave it to my friend Sean McKittrick, who's been, then had became became my producing partner, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I think you can probably get an agent off of this." And, really? and I luckily uh, ended up getting signed by the, the biggest agency in town off of it. So it was a little bit of a fairy tale story in that sense, but I, I like to think that the script was hopefully good enough to warrant that. And and uh, you know, and th- one thing led to another, and uh, 
when Drew Barrymore signed on, I think that was enough to, to, to raise the money. And mm. someone was crazy enough. A guy named Ernst Goldschmidt was crazy enough or kind enough, to really, to give us uh, $4.5 million to make that film. Wait, he was so. one investor? That was it? It was he was the one investor, and then his company got sold to another company when we were in prep, uh-huh. and they were kind enough not to pull the plug because sometimes that does happen when a, when a company gets sold when your movie isn't completely greenlit yet. Sometimes they look at the stuff that they that was kind of greenlit when they acquired it, and they're like, "What the what what the fuck is this weird movie with the kid and the rabbit?" You know, they could have just unplugged our green light but luckily they didn't it was a company uh called uh gaylord entertainment that bought pandora i'm not touching Um, it (laughs) um but it it all worked out we shot it in the summer of 2000 in 28 days and uh it was it was craziest experience most intense experience it had to be fucking up like every day where you're like i can't believe this is happening it doesn't normally happen for most cats like that i was write a script right out of film school yeah get an agent get a production company behind you and get some name talent yeah i mean it took probably two years since i wrote the script of getting the agent going around town a lot of people everyone's saying no everyone everyone's saying hey this is a great writing sample it's unproducible you're too young Thank you, but did you get work off of it, like writing gigs? Yes. When did, is that when you got Domino, or is Domino? No, I, I did that later. I, I adapted that novel Holes. Uh huh. That was. Oh yeah, yeah. The Disney movie, The Shia LaBeouf. Yes. Um, which I proceeded to try to turn into a dark Stephen King allegory, and they politely said to <laughs> go fuck myself. <laughs> yeah, they're like, dude, I don't know if but you saw that. I was like, that. but no, it can be. <laughs> dark and uh, and like they're like it's disney's holes dude yeah disney's holes. i was very naive i mean it was a very small amount of money and i was very polite i only took the first part of the money but they were seriously like dude come on what are you thinking um and uh, i i I did a little writing work here and there but then darko happened pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and i uh you know literally dove into it and i think you know you almost make every film as though it's your last at least i do um i always feel like it's going to be the last thing i I ever do Mm -hmm. but i i just i put everything that i had into it i think i lost 20 pounds on this i look i look back at the uh the behind the scenes little documentary in the donnie darko dvd just like wow god i look like this terrified little child you know uh, Mm -hmm. wearing like horrible um you know basketball shorts and and just shoes that you know just my fashion sense was terrible i was direct i looked like a wreck of a human being i think really yeah you're talking to the guy who was booted off a plane for being too fat (laughs) you look pretty good to me oh thank you the um (laughs) was it weird directing uh like famous people first time out i never had to deal with that until second time out really but i mean was it weird first time up at bat that's a substantial chunk of money to have for your movie, but yeah. then you're also working with some name quantities. Was there intimidation factor there at all? It was intimidation at first, but then I just got over it. I just figured if I'm gonna do this, I just need to just talk to these people like they're my friends. Mm-hmm. I didn't go and, and I think it was actually a good thing that I didn't go take all these classes about how to talk to actors and read books on method acting and I didn't overanalyze the situation. I literally just talked to him about my script mm. and what the script meant to me. And I felt like I had picked the right people. And I remember when I brought Jake and Jenna and Maggie 
and a few of the other um, actors over to my house for our first little mini rehearsal, I think I started to give Jake and Jenna a little bit of a line reading and they both gave me the death stare and they're like, Richard, don't ever do that again. <laughs> like they were just like, in a very nice way. I right, said, right. They were very nice, but they're like, Rich, no, don't do that. Don't give us line readings. <laughs> I got that from Alan Rickman once, but if fucking Jenna Malone and Jake Gyllenhaal tried to give it to me, I'd be like, go fuck yourself. No, they're, they're, they <laughs> do what I said. I'm the director. <laughs> No, they, they, I, they shouldn't say the de- the de- They were very nice. They were just, they were, I could tell that it, it rubbed them a little bit the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, act, no actors really like that <laughs> until they're yeah. struggling. Then sooner or later, you, when an actor hits a wall yeah. or can't find it, they'll come to you and just be like, how do you want me to say it? Yeah, but I th- honestly, I think in, in terms of all the actors were wonderful on that film. The, 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 I think the trickiest of it all was with Patrick who was so nice, and he was such a nice guy. Those infomercials that we shot, mm-hmm. he, we, we went to his house in Calabasas, and we shot it at his house. His wife brought out his 80s wardrobe, and, and it was great. But then when it came time to do the public speaking stuff in front of all the kids, right. where he's the infomercial guy, he just got really nervous. Really? Got really, really terrified, and was just couldn't come out of his trailer for a little bit. And he was just, I think he was really scared. And I think he was also really nervous because the, the character, um, you know, turns out to be a child molester. Right. I'm assuming everyone's seen Donnie Darko. Hopefully that's not a spoiler. But, uh, you know, and I think he was just really nervous about it. He played a transvestite and Tuong Fu. He'd uh-huh. done a lot of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's, we met with a lot of actors who were tempted to do that role, but they were just freaked out. And, and very few actors want to play a child molester. It's not a, um, you don't win thing. Oscars playing John Lewis. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like uh, uh, Dylan Baker did it in Happiness, you know, brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, Kevin Bacon did it in the in that film, The Woodsman. I mean, there's been other actors who've gone to that dark place, but it's not like a fun thing to do. I was even uncomfortable asking actors, to, you know, unfortunately this guy is a child molester. Did he um, make a, he made a, like a little beef? He was like, nobody put no, Swayze in a corner kind it, of thing? He was really cool about it. He was really, he realized like, you know, okay, this is a risk, but I think he understood the way he was kind of maybe lampooning a little bit of his image in the eighties. Uh-huh. And it kind of was this wonderful alchemy that, that happened with Patrick Swayze playing this infomercial host guy and teen infomercial guy. And he was so wonderful. And I even at the very end when everyone's waking up and he had to be wake up in bed, sobbing and everything it was like really emotional. And, um, and it, by the end of the shoot, he stayed until the end. He was like hang, hung out with us on set. I could tell he, it was this rejuvenating experience for him. And, you know, when we took the movie to Sundance and it totally tanked, it was horribly received at Sundance. It took like six months to sell and 9-11 happened. And the movie just didn't, was considered a failure at Sundance, a failure at the box office. And the the toughest thing for me is more than anything, I knew that all the cast would go on to do great things. I knew Jake and Maggie and Jenna, everyone was going to go on and have huge careers and everything. Hmm. But what I wanted more than anything is for Patrick to get like this second resurgence for his career for taking this risk and, and playing this role in, in, in this film for a first time director. And it was really, it was, a, it was frustrating because that didn't happen for uh-huh. him. You know, I, I wanted that so much for him, you know, and he was just really a lovely guy, like really? the nicest, nicest guy. The, but, um, when now you, you just talked about it going to Sundance and I remember in a, in advance of Sunday, what year were you there? 2001. 
2001. Okay. Oh, all right. So wait, January 2001 and September 11th wouldn't happen for like nine months. That happened right before the release of the, of flick. the film. So going up yeah. there, there was a lot of buzz, a lot of heat, Drew Barrymore attachment, mm-hmm. made it high profile and whatnot. Mm-hmm. What, and so what happens at the first screening? Did you feel kind of gut punched? Did you feel kind of like? Yeah, you know, it, it's it, with all my movies, you know, all three of the films I've made, they all have very ambiguous endings where I usually kill my lead actor mm. or I kill everyone, right, right, right in the world. Um, right. And they're they're often the kind of movies where everyone looks at each other after it's over and says, what, huh? You know, mm. what, what did I just see? Let's find the filmmaker yeah. and punch him in yeah. the face. You know, it's, they're, they're not, they're, they're like movies. If you, if you test screen them, they're going to be like all over the map. You know, the scores aren't going to add up. They're going to be really low. All that you don't make four quadrant <laughs> movies as they you know, say. So it was, and, and I'll never forget. We at Sundance, it was that same, you know, there was polite applause. There were people walking out. There were people, it was just all over the map. And I think it was just, you know, this was also right after Columbine. And there was like, oh, we've got a kid who shoots someone and then maybe kind of commits suicide at the end. Ooh, this, like, it was like we had, you know, uh, a horrible STD after that screening. Really? You know, no one wanted to, to fuck us. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, one of those things that some movies don't play well at film festivals. They really, they, they, they don't. And, uh, and I think for whatever reason, our movie was just sort of, I think because we had a lot of hype going in, it was all of a sudden like you got nowhere to go but down. Right. You know, because we were like, the first movie at Sundance with digital effects, you know, that was our, that we were tagged with that. So right. immediately I think there was a little bit of like maybe hostility that we were too big for our britches coming in or something like that. Or right. that we kind of didn't belong there because we had CGI. Like what is a movie with CGI doing here? You know, right, right, you know right. it was, it was th- the technology was, was kind of getting to that point. Emerging. Yeah. Emerging. So, um, but you know, like I said, those you know that's the way the cookie crumbles, and and but that was Sundance, and you mm-hmm. said it took six months to find a distributor. It almost debuted on the Stars Network. Uh-huh. It, you know, it was going to go straight to cable. It was, and New Market finally bought it, and we, I think it was we brought the head the heads of New Market into Drew Barrymore's office, and we said, "Will you please give us a theatrical release?" You know, we begged them, and they finally said, "Okay." We'll we'll do a very small theatrical release and we'll time it around Halloween because you've got the scary rabbit. We'll right. Use the rabbit image and we'll try to push it with a little bit of a horror thriller angle and everything like that. And then you know, sure enough, about a month and a half later, uh, September 11th happened, right. and that just knocked everyone. You know, it knocked the whole world on its ass. But it certainly, um, you know, no one, you know, everyone stopped what they were doing for a month and just stared at their television with their jaw on the floor. You know, right. so. Um, you know, it just became incredibly challenging then to try to, you know, release the film in any capacity with any kind of awareness. And obviously the content of the film was not something that... And it was always going to need special handling. Yeah, and so it wasn't the kind of film that people were looking to, to watch right after that happens. So. Yeah, really. Like, <laughs> the, a lot of, like I remember Zoolander was out around then. Yeah. And they actually got a nice, um, a, a few notices from people going, thank God. 
there's a movie like this that yeah. we can go see right now. I'm, I'm sure yeah. after September 11, people weren't like, where's that evil rabbit movie? You know? Yeah, with the jet engine that falls in the house. <laughs> exactly. With the kid who mu- maybe commits suicide at the end. Right, um, all right. Yeah. But what yeah. happened? So it so the theatrical window w- was very, very small. It opened smaller? on 54 screens with a per screen average of about 1,200, something like that. Right. Maybe lower. Um, it was gone in like two weeks. Um that's always the fun call you get from your agent. Like, hey, Rich, we just got the numbers in. Uh, your first screen average was $1,214. Um, they, they, they're they kind of like trying to deliver the news as yeah, nicely yeah, yeah. as possible. And it's just like, you know. Um, I've received many of those phone calls. <laughs> I think that's the, yeah. Here's the positive side. Um, your parents are still alive. <laughs> Um, yeah. You're in relatively good health, I imagine, and uh, you seem to like marijuana. Goodbye. Clinton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, those are the only calls I think I've ever gotten. But uh, you know, it's funny because when your movie, what do you, op- think, what do you think the Chris Nolan calls are? Oh like? my God! You know, welcome, bitch, to the billionaire club. You get to fuck anything you want, eat anything Seriously. you want, eat what you fuck, fuck what you eat. <laughs> When when you when you get that call when when your movie opens at number one everyone in Hollywood they they treat you like you just cured cancer but when, no your, movie, when your movie opens in like last place which I've had happen uh, of the four movies released you know you end up in the fourth of the new movies they they treat you like your child just drowned in the pool yeah. and you might be somehow responsible. <laughs> it's like a combination of real just sorrow and and but also a little bit of like. I don't, know. I don't just trust a hint you. of distance. Yeah, just a hint of distance, like in yeah. case the cops come calling. Like yeah. I knew he was no good. <laughs> we just financed his movie. That was yeah. it. And it's not just like the, your friends and colleagues around town. It's even the guy who seats you at the restaurant. Even he knows. <laughs> yeah. you know? But uh, he's you like, know. I saw that fucking twelve hundred. Ouch. <laughs> First screen average, man. You're gonna sit at the table over by the bathroom. You know? um. <laughs> and I imagine you want a very <laughs> stiff drink. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, like it, it, things change, and you know, um, home video and, and ancillary life leads to to great, bigger and greater. When things. did you become? Yeah. When did you realize you were a cult film? When I was walking down the street for Donnie Darko, we we walked down the street with uh, the Pioneer Two Boots Theater, which is a great theater downtown. They had the, the poster hanging up, and this was like in 2002. It had been out on DVD for like a couple months. And I was like, what the hell is my the poster for the movie doing hanging up in that theater? And I went went inside and I knocked on the, the door and the, the guy said, yeah, well, we're showing it here every Friday night at midnight and it's selling out. And I was like, what? And I'm like, can I come by? <laughs> They're like, yeah, we'd love to have you by. And then I, I showed up at like 2 a.m., Afterwards, and I think we'd all gone to bars, and I'd had a lot to drink, and I expected there to be like four people there. And I got to the um, the post screening Q and A. It was packed. There was people with cameras there, with lights on their cameras, with tape recorders. Like Michael Musto was there, right, right. <laughs> and you know it was like all these these New York people who had really gotten behind the film and embraced it. And I'm like really drunk, trying to politely talk talk you know about uh what the film means and everything and um there was a write-up michael musto wrote up a thing and in, in the village voice about it and everything so it was like wow okay maybe this isn't over yet and then it opened in the uk and yeah that and yeah. in the uk man like even now when i go over to the uk i'm not uh, uh clerks kevin smith i'm kevin smith comma richard kelly's friend 
Like you, that well, film was so fucking yeah. huge over there. And and didn't they give it away in a newspaper recently? They they do this amazing thing. Uh, they did it with Prince, where they yeah. put a bunch of Prince's album into the. I don't know. If it's, it's the a, Sunday paper, I yeah. guess. And they make some deal with them where they put a DVD where they put a book or an album in every copy of the Sunday paper. If you buy it, you get they. It's in a clear plastic thing, and it's like an amazing marketing tool. Yeah, it's no a, doubt. an amazing, amazing saturation because I think you only have to pay a dollar for the paper and you end up getting mm-hmm. the, I think it obviously costs money to do it, but the distributor in the UK did a wonderful job. And, and then the mad world song went to number one, even a year later, mm-hmm. which is like, it's called the Christmas number one, which is in the UK at Christmas time. It's, right, right, right. it's like the one song that everyone votes to number one. And, um, and that was it. Yeah. Mad so every time yeah. they said it, they were like Donnie Darko. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, you know, and that was a song that we, we recorded up at Mike Andrews house in like three hours. I remember when we recorded it and I was like, hell yeah, that's amazing. We're going to put that at the end. And, um, you know, but that wasn't until like a couple years later. So it was just the, it's sort of, defied a lot of rules of when you think a movie right. is dead and then it comes back to life and it, sometimes it takes a couple of years for it to come back to life but it's just it's it gives you a lot of of, of faith you know um i mean i'm sure uh you mall know, rats bitch. mall rats yeah, man i mean like Same th- thing. that's got to be uh, for a lot of your fans you know maybe w- their favorite or you know if it's not, the gateway it, movie for for most people you know because all the stuff we we used to do was very interconnected the yeah. um mall rats seem to be of all the people who would come up to me and talk about the stuff i do mall rats was the common thread that was always the gateway flick like they would talk about chasing amy or dogma or clerks but they'd be like first one i ever saw was mall rats i yeah. love mall rats so and that was the movie that I was told by critics was like, it's bad, you're terrible, it's just fucking shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did like almost no business. You know, the marketing for it was kind of, yeah. they let us kind of pick the poster. And we were just like, give us a Drew Struzan poster, bitch. Yeah. Not thinking like, nobody's going to know what the fuck this movie is. Like, it looked like a gigantic comic book. But, yeah. uh, you know, who were we marketing to? But we yeah. weren't thinking about that. We were just thinking like, what's going to look cool on our wall? Yeah. Um, you know, but, but so in the moment when it came out, it was just, I mean, not certainly not disaster, but it's $6 million budget. Well, actually Mosher said it was less than six. Yeah. Five, I think five, two, five, two budget. And then we wound up doing two and change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with video and shit, everything fucking took care of itself. But in the moment it was just like, nobody, nobody likes this. Like, I guess I was wrong. I thought this was funny. Me and my friends thought this was funny, but it's pretty, it's not apparently we're idiots. Yeah. And it wasn't until video that people kind of caught up with it. And all of yeah. a sudden it found its audience. Water finds its level and every movie eventually finds its audience. And it yeah. sounds like you found yours within two years of the movie's uh, birth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always, you know, it, it's always, you know, it, it makes you feel like the experience was worthwhile because it is tough when a movie fails upon its initial release because you put so much time and, you know, these are very personal things, you know, cause you write your own stuff and mm-hmm. you pour your, your guts, you know, it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears up on that screen. Mm. And then if, if it doesn't connect, you know, it's frustrating and it, you try to, it always feels good to have the next one to be moving into the next one. So you're not just sort of wallowing on it, wallowing in the, in the failure or wallowing in the, totally. you know, but, um, but you know, it's it's nice to 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 feel like 
that these things live on and that they continue. And, Would you say that, that that Darko paved the way for Southland Tales? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Southland was definitely like this crazy, crazy film that you only get to do once in your your entire career. And, and you were working off the goodwill and the chits that kind of came with Darko after the fact, like Darko, yeah. the, the, when Darko became the cult hit, suddenly mm-hmm. it went from like what I imagined based on what you talked about, that Sundance moment, trying to find a distrib, yeah. the fucking pre-September 11th opening and shit. It goes from like, we're never going to work again. I'm never going to fucking yeah. work again to suddenly you're like, oh shit, the same thing that I thought fucked us made us like yeah. you know it was the stepping stone to get to the next one because people were so fond of it after the fact yeah yeah and, and with southland tales it was this hugely ambitious ironically it was a commentary on september 11th in a way of like let's do september 11th version 2.0 like a nuclear attack mm-hmm. and then let's flash forward and try to do a philip k dick um thomas pension-esque kind of satire right you know as you were talking about with red state politics religion and sex right. and, and try to try to make this um sort of satire of our sort of vulgar political discourse and how polarized we are as a country and and talk about civil liberties and pornography and um project into 2008 about the most vulgar ridiculous sort of comic book reality of what our culture might be in response to an even bigger um terrorist attack an even mm-hmm. bigger cataclysm and so you know very consciously, I think. I think yeah. basically, you just there's a lot of people listening going, Oh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you kind of explained what Southland Tales yeah. is. That's it, a question I get more than even about my own work. They're like, Hey, what was Southland yeah. Tales about? And it was also really um, intended to be sort of okay, if the world is going to end and it's going to end in Los Angeles in this crazy culmination of power structures of the you know, the wireless electricity. Uh, you know, Baron von Westphalen and the, the Wallace Shawn character has invented the the source to the energy crisis during World War III. There's the election. There's the the Rock playing the movie star who's tied in uh, with the Republican Party mm-hmm. and the the mix of politics in Hollywood, Washington and Hollywood in terms of uh, you know that we're obviously seeing now um, right. with you know Sarah Palin is a reality star and she's probably going to be running for president. You know in 2012 so we're seeing this sort of convergence uh in pop culture and politics and um we were trying to make a comment about the the direction that we were going and um you know it was extremely ambitious and it was so ambitious that um it became difficult to contain into into a two a two hour and 20 minute film well two two thirty i can't remember what the final running time ended up being and uh, I wrote all these, gra- started writing all these graphic novels that, mm-hmm. that you and your and your partner Bob Chapman, Bob were, Chapman, yeah, were generous you enough to reach down at one point, and you were just like, I, "There's so much more of the story that I would like to tell, and I think like maybe comics would be a good medium for it." And so, mm-hmm. um, Bob Chapman and and uh, I, I introduced to Richard to Bob Chapman, and we kind of explained the the project, and Bob was like, "All right, let's give it a shot," and was way into it. And so you produced, you wrote, and who was the artist? Brett Weldley. Such an um, amazing job. Yeah. But you wrote, uh, I mean, there's, uh, there's big hardcovers, but how many? Three. S- three big hardcovers mm-hmm. um, that essentially, would you say, fill in missing information or tell it's, the pre-story? It's the first, it's the first half of a, of a six-chapter story. And even if you watch the film, this is another thing that 
confused the shit out of people when they saw the movie is that it's three chapters in the movie, but it's chapters four, five, and six. Right. A lot of people thought it was a little wink to Star Wars. Right, right, right. Um, but really, I, I realized the graphic novels were part of an essential, complete story. Mm-hmm. And I, I made those chapters one, two, and three. Um, under the naive assumption that people would actually find them out, find them and read them, not realizing that, that the audience for graphic novels is very, very, very small. I mean, it's become much bigger, but right. it's usually when you have marketing and you've got, it takes a lot of time for these things to saturate it. You're lucky to sell like, uh, yeah. uh, like a, a best selling comic book right now is between a hundred and 200,000. So, yeah. I mean, if you, if you sell a couple thousand, you're like, wow, we at least moved some unit, you know, but it's like, right. it's really, really cult and it's really, really small. So I was naive at the time to, to think that the books would be, would saturate right and 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 i also struggled because we were we also got nominated for the palm d'or we got we got invited to can um which was like this overwhelming um honor Mm -hmm. but there was no way the movie was going to be ready in time and we had so many visual effects that we that weren't finished that we couldn't afford to finish all this like kind of media content that we wanted to put in the film. And it was just like, holy, holy shit, what do we do? How did the, how did can get involved? Did they come see it? They came in and saw it and they immediately got what we were trying to do. Like the French have a, they, they've been, the French have been very good to me. They mm-hmm. really understand, um, what I'm trying to do. And they really, um, appreciate certain kinds of, of satire. Right. They appreciate, um, very kind of esoteric science fiction and metaphysical metaphysical ideas. I mean that 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 kind of stuff that tends not to play so well um, to, to mainstream audiences. The French tend to embrace and to push, and they I think they understood what I was trying to do uh, in in telling uh, a sort of of a sat, it was a satire of of, of the kind of post nine eleven response and, right. and, and and of American culture and American pop culture and the direction in which. We were headed, and I think they they understood that. But Who was it? Who watched it? It was it was the the top guys. Theory from the, Theory from O, and mm-hmm. he was a big supporter. And you know, and so to go out to Cannes with a film that's very bold, with you know, with with uh, the cast, that, you know, that we had assembled, and the film was very long. It was still you know too long at the time. It was oh six. Was this oh six? This is oh six. You were there with clerks. You were there too. with clerks too. Yeah, and it was you know I would, I remember. I came out early because I was like, I was yeah. fucking thrilled. I was like, I what are the chances I'll ever be in a movie that's going to yeah. walk the palais at the yeah. at Cannes? And I remember and you got to walk the red carpet with us at Cannes, and you were awesome. wearing your, your, your jean shorts. <laughs> and it was awesome because they let you do it. Because they, yeah. they were very strict about the, the tuxedos there and everything. But, you know, we had Dwayne Johnson on the red carpet and Zelda Rubenstein. You know, God bless her. She's no longer with us. She mm-hmm. was there. And it was like... She's a chick from Poltergeist. Yeah, she this played, ass is clean. Yeah, and so she played, you know, she. we had this amazing cast, and it felt so great to be walking that red carpet with probably the most unpretentious cast that's ever walked that red carpet. Mm-hmm. You know, and immediately we, we were going to be attacked, and we were just going to going to be you know we had a big bullseye on us for people to just you know tear us to shreds and given that the film was long and it wasn't finished we we knew you know that it was going to be rough and so you know aside from the younger some some of the younger french press and some of the younger foreign press the more adventurous press that really got the film and 
you know, the New York Times and the Village Voice really got behind it. And there was a, a select few, but for the most part, they just ripped us to shreds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a rough, it was a rough experience. But ironically, a lot of people, you know, they, they say, you know, God, Southland Tales, you know, what a disaster, it can and everything like that. But, um, they applauded the film at the screening. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I remember the press. Yeah, I was there. They yeah, stood the, up too. The, 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 yeah, they stood up. We got a standing ovation and everything. But it was it was the the morning press screening when we had all the walkouts and all the, the you know the people. They get really na- they get really nasty over there. They they tend to and and you know it's just part they of. They yelled at Jim Jarmusch once, man. They had a screening. I forget. Yeah. I think it was Dead Man and fucking. They were there was this French chick going, "Jimmy, this shit." <laughs> you know, and I remember Sofia Coppola was there with uh, Marie Antoinette. And, oh, she got booed. Yeah, man. that was the yeah. same year she yeah. was there. That's right. The big story in Cam was like, "Did you hear Marie Antoinette got booed?" Yeah. And the Da Vinci Code was there that got booed. So it was definitely like the well, yeah, rightfully. But it was it was <laughs> it was it was the year it was the year when all the the Americans got got you know got their asses kicked. Mm-hmm. And um, well, Clerks too got a standing. That's over. right, you know, that's right. And I was there. That's Eight minutes right. long. But, I was you know, there at that. Uh, we stayed until the end. And that was a uh, great night. That was a great night, and it was it was great to stay to the end because we were just like bruised and battered and everything, mm-hmm. and to see. You have that amazing screening to be a part of. It was like, wow, at least someone had a great, you know, experience. <laughs> did here. you feel? Did you feel like fucking Bill Murray in Groundhog Day? Because it feels like or sounds like a very similar experience to the Sundance experience. Yeah, like it, in terms of like mm-hmm. you get invited to one of the top film festivals. There's a lot of hype, anticipation, and then you fall off the fucking cliff. Yeah, it was. It was. It was exactly like that. It was version 2.0, and it made us realize, okay. We're going to stick with this. We're going to finish the film. And the, and the, the thing that happened actually before Cannes had ended is that we had five companies bidding on the film. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Sundance with Darko. We had like the worst STD for five months. And right. No one wanted us. It was like we had five. They were very low bids, but it was like Sony, New Market, um, it might have been like Lionsgate or something. I can't remember, but it mm-hmm. was, they were very small, like bids, but people wanted it. They saw that it wasn't finished. They saw we had a cast. They saw that. That's the thing. You know, it's like, even regardless of, of what ultimately it winds up being, uh, a smart studio could look at that cast and just go like, we could sell the shit out yeah. of this on video. And Sony, Sony bought it and they're like, you know, they assured me that we were going to get a theatrical release. And I explained to them that, that the movie needed more CGI and that, you know, we ran out of time and this and that. And it was a guy, you know, Scott Schumann at Sony was very uh, supportive. And then it took us like another eight months of continuing to cut the film about 30 to 40 new CGI shots that had to be finished. And right. it was a huge ordeal. And it felt like I, you know, and I still had to finish the graphic novels and working with Bob to get the graphic novels all finished and everything. It was like literally like pushing myself to the limits of what I can generate as a creative person right. you know i don't know if you've, you've ever felt like man because you have so many things going on with the smod castle with you know making red state mm-hmm. with all the stuff that you do and i i you're like i mean you're like oprah <laughs> what because i'm fat no no in terms of you're building like an empire and it's really one that nobody's noticed well, you know oprah's everybody they noticed. just they they better wait because like seriously i i feel like you're really um building something uh new in terms of what you've done with all the podcasts and with small castle and the way you've connected when you you the way you connect all of all of what you do into kind of this network. Mm. I mean, seriously, it's, it's very impressive and it's, it's, 
it's exciting to it's inspiring it really is so but anyway i i um you know, I felt like I was pushing myself to the, to the limits of what I could accomplish. I knew I had bitten off more than I could chew. Right. I knew that people probably weren't going to understand Southland Tales unless they had had, they had read the graphic novels. I'm like, man, in 0.5% of the people who see this movie are going to have read the books. Right, right. You know, but then you realize, you know, over time, I, you know, people felt like people have discovered them and, you know, I, I still to this day feel like Southland Tales is an unfinished film. And, you know, if it takes me until, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and I'm breathing oxygen, I'm going to try to figure out a way to somehow advance the graphic novels further, whether it's trying to put them together as a low budget animated film or do, you know, whether it's, whether it looks like Waltz with Bashir or it looks like, you know, one of the animatrix prequels or something. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I still want to figure out a way to try to tell the entire Southland Hills story over six chapters, because I think it would make a lot more sense to people and it would make people re, uh, reassess the entire film and, and what, what it is, because it is this big story, uh, of it's just, that's not a movie that you can, um, like sell an opening weekend on, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Where that's a movie that needs special handling, yeah. that needs crying game treatment, yeah. that needs somebody to kind of be like, let's be a lot more clever about this than simply putting a bunch of TV spots on and fucking hoping people show up on opening Friday. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, but the nice thing about, uh, the, at least what I've learned from my personal experience, the nice thing about the theatrical that doesn't go so well is time is always on your side. So much of this business is predicated on like, get it done, spend all the fucking money to wait for that one opening weekend. Yeah. Everything, all that work, eight months of prep or a year of prep uh, or however long it takes, um, however long you shoot, 28 days, 30 days, 50 fucking days, all the money that's spent, all the lives that have been rearranged, the schedules changed to this, mm. is, is stupidly in this business is all predicated on an opening weekend. Now, yeah. That works for fucking Dark Knight because, yeah, a bunch of people are going to go see it. But something like Southland Tales, you can't. Yeah. That's the kind of thing where it benefits far better from a slow rollout or not even a yeah. slow rollout, but just like uh, hand-holding, hand yeah. you know, a movie that needs to be accompanied for a while to kind of yeah. get before it can go out on its own because it doesn't have the same makeup that a product so mm -hmm. to speak, like uh, the, the studios and not to d dismiss what they do at all, but they they're in the business of making product and they fill their slate full of product. And every once in a while, some of the product turns out to be something fucking special and connects with you in a personal way. But shy of that, they're just like, we're all about hitting this date. And when that is over, there's a date the next weekend. Yeah. When that's over, there's one after that. It's assembly line. So mm -hmm. naturally, they care about everything they make, of course, but they care about it in a different way. They care about it because it means their job. Yeah. If this doesn't perform well, I'm out of a fucking job. We care about it because we don't know what else to do. It's not a job. This is an extension of who we are to a large degree. Yeah. So people like you and I aren't really engineered for this kind of like, everything's fucking, let it ride on fucking 22, man. I'm putting it on <laughs> black 22, black 22, let it ride. That's what, that's what the movie business right now. It's just like spend a shit ton of money. You know, fucking 20 million making the movie, 40 million to sell the fucking movie, mm -hmm. all predicated on that weekend. And, and the stuff we do, I'm not saying it's fucking brilliant or better than anybody else's shit, 
But it's 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 like a special needs kid, man. It just yeah. needs a little extra <laughs> fucking attention. And then if you give it that attention, it may surprise you and wind up being able to tie its shoes one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I find that like uh, the time, uh, you know, first be- is our enemy for the theatrical release. But then time becomes a great friend to the stuff you and I do because there's no rush anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no like, we got to make sure they know everything they need to know to get their asses in seats for this fucking weekend. And if we blow it, if it doesn't work, then we don't give a fuck. We walk away. Yeah. We have the benefit after shit like that happens of proselytizing slowly, taking it out there again, reintroducing it to an audience that didn't get to see it because some uncreative jackass steamrolled over how to handle the movie because they were like, well, let's just spend money on it. Let's just put some TV commercials on. That'll sell it. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, But where we benefit is because people have more time. They can do shit like, hey, man, I saw Southland Tales, and now I want to read up more. I hear there's fucking books on it and shit. Mm -hmm. Then they go out and seek them out. So while you didn't... uh, Everybody... 0.5% 0.5% read the graphic novel in advance of seeing Southland Tales before it came out in theaters or on video. Now you have a lifetime for people to kind of catch up and kind of, you know, dip themselves into it slowly and then submerse themselves even more because mm-hmm. you've created this multi-tiered multimedia experience for them that like the word didn't get out first time because people are like, yeah, you know, I guarantee you at a certain point you were like, look, it's really important for people to understand that there is a tie-in book for this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the people who were marketing the movie were just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are books? Fuck you. You want to sell books? Go to fucking... Yeah. Well, they're all closed. Go to Amazon. But like here, <laughs> we make movies. Like, it, it was just something they couldn't comprehend because it's not traditional. It yeah. doesn't fit into the mold of like, oh, yes, well, we did that on this movie, so it could work. You were kind of like, look, I'd like to push this. It was very important to you. I remember around that period, yeah. you kept talking about, like, they got to understand that the books are out there, the books are out there. And you were getting no help, you know, yeah. from the from the kind of uh, industry side in terms of people going like, yeah, man, there are these books that would be real kind of keen insight into the movie, blah, blah, blah. What we were able to do is by the time the Blu-ray came out, for Southland, which is a much better transfer of, of the film. Mm. We were able to work with Bob Chapman and put the graphic novels as a Blu-ray interactive thing where we took each panel and we separated all the panels and um, we can click through it. And it's mm. not the ideal way to read a graphic novel is by clicking through a Blu-ray, but at least the fact that they're on there, like a lot more people are going to buy a Blu-ray than they are a graphic novel, you know, and if they discover it because it's on the menu or something like that, it's at least a gateway. Very, very true. You know, and a, also now too, you can like turn it into like an online comic or a fucking yeah. web app comic. Like a lot of people, I've been reading comics on my fucking, on my iPad and on my iPhone yeah. lately. And it's astounding. It, the it's, technology has shifted. I mean, in, in a few years, you know, Books are just going to be something that are decoration in, in people's The New York houses. Times has announced within five years they're stopping publishing yeah. and going completely online. I mean, it's it's crazy to think, um, you know, Harley is probably you know one of the last generations that's going to have read, still be reading books in mm-hmm. school. And I'm sure by the time she gets into high school, it's going to be all on the Kindle or all on the iPad, you know. And it's to the point where... Um, you wonder if like they even have the the iPads or the they they read the book back to you, right. where, where kids are going to be you know reading Jane Austen, but it's going to be some robo voice reading Jane Austen to them while they're playing you know that your Call dad of Duty. that your dad probably <laughs> built yeah it's like, yeah 
Yeah. Were you ever like, if, I, if my dad was as smart as your dad is inventive, I would have been like, build me a robot brother. Yeah. <laughs> when I was young. And then when I got older, I'd be like, build me a robot lover. <laughs> yeah. The real doll. Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> responsible for that. But, um, you know, I tell you the, the few... Somewhere your dad's listening to this going like, fuck you, Richard. I, I think I did a lot of cool things just because I didn't make a sex toy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you've uh, you did uh, the last book you did was the box. Yes, and yes. so you've you directed three features. I'm not forgetting three features. Anything. Yeah, in ten years, three features in ten years, which is really good. Admirable as fuck. Well, not as prolific as you. I, I'm in awe of your productivity. That's because I don't. My movies are very easy to make. Like it, right. basically, what you do requires a blank canvas and you paint a portrait. Right. What I do is we rip it out of a paint by number coloring book. Fill in the colors and quick put it out. Well, listen, I, I think what you've accomplished is significant in your, your Oprah-like empire that you're slowly <laughs> building, <laughs> which I'm serious about. And, and, and uh, I, 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 can't, I, I won't talk about Red State because it's top secret, but it's very exciting. Yeah, you saw it. Very, I, very Richard exciting. came over and watched it last <laughs> week. It was nice. that what, what I was described the reaction to... Jennifer, Jennifer was just like, how do you like it? And I said, it was cute. He had this expression on his face that, that was almost as like, hey, man, your dog just started talking to me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like the movie was just like, you didn't make this. <laughs> like, really, who made this? So that was, that was kind of neat. It's always nice to be a few years in and be able to still kind of pull out something I will say surprising I, even for a pro. I've never seen a filmmaker reinvent himself the way you just have. Um, it's, I, I won't say anything else cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, it's really, it's really fun. exciting. I might actually just, um, you know, if the movie ends up playing at Sundance, I, I might actually just come up just to see the audience's response. Just to watch to people's reactions. Yeah. I yeah, cannot wait. The fun part. <laughs> I cannot um, wait. All right. So I'm sorry. Back to you. Going back to is the box was the third flick. You made. Yes. Yes. Um, now, at this point, um, are you ecstatic that you're making? Had you set this up before Southland? No, this is. A, a, I optioned the, the short story from Richard Matheson uh -huh. from his estate five, six years ago. Out of, and Richard Matheson is the guy that wrote um, um, which one? Call it. Um, he wrote Duel. He yeah. wrote um, What Dreams May Come. Uh, he wrote A Stir of Echoes. Mm -hmm. uh, he's responsible for a lot of the original uh, Twilight Zone episodes from. Uh, the original series in the sixties, he wrote a couple of the new ones in the eighties, which mm -hmm. was what button button actually was, was derived from a short story that was published in playboy in 1971, rewritten by Matheson as a teleplay in 1985. Mm -hmm. um, I optioned the short story and I'm actually legally prohibited from mentioning, uh, the name of that television show that I just mentioned. Um, I'll take it out. <laughs> I mean, it actually doesn't matter anymore. When I was promoting the movie, I got a couple angry phone calls from attorneys like, you're not allowed to mention that television show. Like, that was part of the deal. You can't use that to promote the movie. And I'm like, all right, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, um, I guess they don't want free advertising for their DVDs or whatever. But, uh, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was definitely that was the inspiration. And, uh, and it was my first studio film in the sense that, Warner Brothers bought the film while we were in prep. Bought and it from who? Media Rights Capital, who had put up the money. But it was part of an overall deal where Warner Brothers bought three films. Uh -huh. 
uh, our film, the Ricky Gervais film called The Invention of Lying, uh-huh. and the Robert Rodriguez film Shorts. It was a three-picture deal. We were the and first MRC to MRC had financed all of those? Had financed all three, and it was a big, huge three-picture deal upon which we were the first of those films to go before cameras. So it was all about my cooperation and my behavior that was helping seal this three-picture deal. So I had to be very... Um, you know, I had to really play my cards correctly with the studio, and I wanted to because I had never had a film released on more than fifty screens before. Right. You know? So, um, and it was this huge learning experience um, dealing with a studio. In the sense, it was a negative pickup, but it was also like they were on set, they were giving script notes. You know, studio executives were on set, so I, you know, that's the first time I'd ever gone through that. And we you know we, we had Cameron Diaz and, and James Marsden, Frank Langella, and the budget was twenty five million. You know, it was like whoa. You know, this is I've never had this these kinds of, of resources to work with before. Right. And you know, I don't know if, if on Cop Out in terms of the budget disparity from your previous films, whether you felt like it, it wasn't was, even the most expensive when I when I got I involved. I guess maybe Jersey in Girl it, was the most. Jersey Girl yeah. was still the most. That was thirty five. Right. And then Cop Out was thirty two. Right. And it was only, what did we do? I think Zach and Mary was 30. So it was only like 2 million more than Zach and Mary or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason Jersey Girl cost more is in salaries. Like there was more money yeah. kind of went out on salaries on that movie. Yeah. So it was, um, it wasn't that big. You know, I mean, it was big, but trust me, it's a lot of money. But by yeah. studio standards, both your budget and my budget were very, very small. Yeah. They kind of like guys like us because, we don't go in there and be like, you got to give me 50 in order for me to do this. Yeah. And one, you know, one of the things that I, I feel really good about is whether the movies are successful or not, or whether people understand them or not, or connect with them. Is it, I feel like I've always been able to get a production value on screen where, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. where my dollar to eye candy ratio is very good in terms of like the, the, the money and the below the line budget. Once you take away all the salaries and all the movie star stuff out of there, how much money you actually have below the line, you know, to physically produce the movie. How do you translate those dollars onto screen in a way that it's like, you know, wow, it, like it's all on screen. And that's something that I, I always feel like is a real, is that, that's what you should be most proud of at the end of the day when you wrap production is like, did you spend your money well? Right. And, and just having seen what you did, you know, on red state, <laughs> It's amazing to see what you did with, with that Thank you know, you. very small amount of money. And it's like that's where you, you know, when you wrap a film and you look at your crew and you all have that moment to like exhale, you know, right. it's like waiting to exhale when, you know, Angela Bass, it's like, you know, yeah. um, maybe two, like, two people got that. <laughs> um, did you see that movie? I just saw it. I just saw it on cable the other night. That's I, why you're I, calling I really, me Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit, you know. I saw it. I watched the whole thing with Whitney and the whole whole deal. Anyway, (laughs) Forrest Whitaker, you know, um, but anyway, it it was, you have this, this feeling of, uh, just, it feels so good when you rap and you feel like you, you did the best you could. And then you put the money on the screen, put the money on the screen and you feel the best. You did the best you could. Um, no one died. Like no one, you know, um, nothing, no, nothing catastrophic happened, right, <laughs> and because right, right. you never get that time back, you never get those days back. Even if you do reshoots or additional photography, it's never the same. Uh-uh. And uh, and you know, luckily, I've never had to do you know 
On Southland, we did the, the levitating ice cream truck at the end because we didn't have an ending. We uh-huh. did that like about a month later. But on the box, we didn't have any reshoots at all. We had, we had a huge, long cut, very expensive, some very expensive kind of action set piece stuff got cut out of the film. Right. A lot of it ended up in the trailer for the movie. Um, but it didn't end up in the final film, but you know, it, it was, it was definitely, uh, a very, very long post-production with a lot of CGI. And I'm actually looking forward to doing a movie that has virtually no CGI in it right. because it's no effects work. so time consuming. And it's, you know, and I also, the fact that you had a, like almost finished cut of red state mm-hmm. when you wrapped. Yeah. I'm like, that's where I say like, how do you do that? It's amazing. You just like, don't wait for anybody. If you're waiting for effect shots, you can't do it. And it's amazing that you can cut that fast and that you can do it not, while you're shooting. Like that is simple. Shoot, cutting that fast is no secret. And that any TV editor will fucking tell you how yeah. easy it is. Cause that's essentially what we did. Like somebody, I think one of those dopey fucking movie websites, um, said something about fucking, uh, he cut the movie. He's done cutting the movie. I don't know if that's good for a movie to be cut that quickly. Um, if you can really figure the movie out, number one, I, I wrote the fucking film, asshole. Like, <laughs> I don't need to figure anything out. Like, I fucking know yeah. what I'm doing. Number two, they do that. They used to do it on Lost every fucking week. What do you think? They cut that three years ago, put it on a shelf, and waited for your ass <laughs> to see it? Like, they were literally cutting that shit as it was fucking finishing yeah. and shit. They'd cut it, and you'd see it six days later on TV in a lot of cases. So, yeah. cutting fast is, it, it exists, and fighting, cutting fast quality exists as well they do it all the time on most of those television shows that you like so much it's just in film people tend to get very lazy and very rich you know and just like well we got all the time in the world you know we'll cut and they rent out big offices and fuck sometimes you got more than one editor and shit yeah me i just felt like i love editing because it's like writing a draft it's it's playing with the material like it never felt right to turn it over to somebody else Mm -hmm. um we worked with one um external editor somebody who i wasn't involved in the editing process at all on mall rats nice guy really great guy this dude paul but uh it was still just weird like giving the footage to somebody else and being like okay you do something with it because it's not it's like baking a cake and taking it out of the oven when it's not fucking done and hanging off to somebody else and be like put this in your oven yeah you know like for me i'm like i'll just keep it in my oven fuck you and and that to me is an essential part of the process now where i like to shoot and then immediately cut the next day so yeah. it's because it's all fresh in my head so i'm sitting on our set watching the scene be shot and i'm i'm really just collecting moments sitting there going oh there's that oh that's perfect there's that there's that so 24 hours later when i sit down with that same footage i just pull from the memory going there was that and take three that mm-hmm. she totally did great or take three for him was amazing or take one he blasted out the water and take two was kind of a waste of time except for this one line yeah. so you keep it all fresh and then you just sit there and chop 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 it up i have that memory bank and i understand exactly what you're saying and the the thing that i'm going to do on, on my next film if if it happens early next year which i hope it will is that i'm going to have my editor on set with me i'm gonna have everything on set with me because what i've done in the past is it's you know in the last movie we were in boston the editors were back in la and there was this disconnect yeah and that disconnect even though it was geography and yeah you they'll they'll email you and stuff but you just feel like there isn't enough progress being made and there is this this 
that that disconnect just slows everything down and it and it it, it but that stretches is, everything to out to be fair and, though i mean and i certainly don't want to fucking lose any editors a job but for yeah. writer directors man i think editorial is a step that should be included. i'm not saying every writer director must edit their work but yeah you're missing out. It's it's like uh, it's like doing. I'll just take sex, but no head ever. It's, <laughs> you want to include that in the equation because yeah. <laughs> it feels good, Richard. Well, um, but that being able to edit yourself, I've been saying for years, like just learn to edit. Yeah, you know, because it's. I mean, when you use, like, I use the Avid system. A lot of people use Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's basically it's all computer based, so you can literally now do it on your fucking laptop. Yeah. Well, when you take the laboratory out of the equation, I mean, you just shot uh, Red State on the Red camera, mm-hmm. and, and we shot the box on the Genesis, um, and the workflow and the and the oh, it's amazing. It's how amazing that the, you get the, that footage. How expedient it is, and even watching dailies, you can watch them the same day. And we we had that on the box. We had a, all of our dailies, but in terms of looking at assembled scenes and looking at at early cuts of scenes while you're on set and mm-hmm. knowing when you need to adjust something or go, you know, pick something up or cut something that you don't need. It's just, you know, I'm changing everything up in terms of having it out there with, you know, when you're on location, if you're in a tax rebate state, if you're in Louisiana or if you're in Detroit or somewhere, spend the extra money to bring your editor out there, put mm-hmm. them up in the hotel with you, put them in, you know, their own trailer, let them be on set, putting shit together and, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, if, if it's not me physically doing it just because I, I'd actually be afraid, I'd be afraid of having to, I know an avid a little bit, I can cut a little bit, but like taking on that extra job would actually terrify me. To have, think. You, have your dad build a robot. <laughs> <laughs> an edit droid. Yeah, yeah, I'll have him get on that. I'll have him try to see if he can put it's that It's fun, together. man. Editing <laughs> is either of the, I mean, I was not, uh, uh, Final Cut was a little, um, there's a space, a, a time bar line on, on Final Cut that I find irritatingly small. Yeah. And I always wish they would extend it to be fatter like the Avid timeline, but I guess that's proprietary. Yeah. So that, but that's what holds me back from Final Cut Pro. So, Regardless, though, either of those two editing systems are incredibly easy to learn, yeah. have amazing functionality, and can turn a chimp into an editor. Yeah, That's where I've just, over the last, let me say, I think it was Chasing Amy was the first one we cut on Avid. That was 96, in post in 96. So I've been doing it now for, what, 14 years? Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I swear by it. You've yeah. got to cut your own stuff, man. It's it's like getting to write another draft, you know? It's, yeah. It's, well, I, I'm, I, I micromanage the entire process, and I'm very, like, t- extremely involved down to every tiny little detail. Probably yeah, the, but at the end of the day, you're still letting someone yeah. else eat your wife out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit there and coach all you want and be like, well, she likes to be licked there. <laughs> But it's still, you know, you yeah. remove, pull that motherfucker out of her lap. A, you get in there. It's a little bit like being a swinger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think I'm just, uh, I'm scared of taking on that responsibility by myself. You right. know, and it's, had I not figured out how to do it earlier. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I think I'm, since I'm changing everything up, I'm probably cutting out a little bit of the, the middleman process by completely changing up my whole system and everything. But, um, you know, more than anything, I just don't want to have the anxiety I've had in the past in the in the editing period because that's supposed to be. You like, do. You go to pieces in fucking yeah, editing. I remember I really seeing do. you during the. Uh, 
I think it was the Southland editing, and you were like, "Oh, it's taking a lot out of me. It's a puzzle that needs to be figured out." Yeah, it always seemed like 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 torture, and I was like, yeah. "No, this part's supposed to be fucking I know. fun." I know, and I think it's just like maybe the now that I'm getting older and I'm just changing up things about my process, and even now I'm making a, del- a deliberate attempt, you know, with the next film to not tell such a massive, intricately complex story with, you know. I, yeah, I have these three-hour rough cuts that I have to cut an hour out of, and it's got a lot of big, you know, huge amounts of material, and I kind of end up, you know, like I said, biting off more than I can chew, and it becomes this. It, 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 I make it very hard on myself and hard on the entire team to whittle a movie down to a manageable length when there's all this significant amount of material that has to get dropped out. So I think I've I've figured out a system on this next movie where it's not going to be like that anymore. And it is supposed to be like the honeymoon, like the cutting process, the editing process, man, that should be the funnest part. Yeah. It shouldn't bring you anxiety, but for whatever reason it, it has for me in the past. And it's, it's, it's turned me into uh, just this, you know, quivering, you know, mess of a person who, you know, wants to, you know, curl up in the fetal position you know i know it's but, a, it, uh, i've never seen anyone as affected by the editing process you yeah know, negatively affected like it impacted your sleep your health where i was just like what are you doing in that editing room i know like i don't think you're doing it properly yeah. i don't do you know what editing is <laughs> you know but it i think it was just the stress of it and and realizing that um you know i had tried to do something that was so ambitious and complex and trying to write the graphic novels at the same time. It was just, I tell you, I'm not Oprah and right. I'm not Kevin Smith. I can't multitask. Yeah, yeah, you know? like one thing at a but, time. Uh, yeah. Really but I mean, I, I can multitask, but I think it was a sense of like, man, I, this is just, and it's, and, and I, and I, I finished the graphic novels and I, I, I've, I've, I can't say I've finished Southland Tales cause I still have this, this dream, whether or not I ever get to do it or not of revisiting it and, and getting, getting to kind of put the whole, saga together at mm-hmm. some point but you know i got it as far as i could and um you know that that gives me a tremendous sense of satisfaction but uh you know going forward i think it's sort of sort of like the way i've seen you grow as a filmmaker with what you just done with red state and to see you completely just moving into new territory and refining your 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 system to make it even more efficient because mm. literally i the efficiency that's what it's about efficiency. That it must take to have a, to be show at your rap party for your movie you showed yeah. a cut of your movie yeah. at your rap party that's yeah. amazing yeah. and i saw and people movie. say i'm a lazy fat ass stoner <laughs> oh i mean it's 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 amazing uh and so you here's know. the best commercial for editing that I could, I could possibly, the best way I could sell you on it. Yeah. Um, you will spend so much less money and time on set if you're, if the director is also the editor, because then yeah. you're just editing while you shoot. That's all I would do is just kind of sit there and go, got that moment, got that moment, yeah. got that moment. So there were a lot of takes on Red State where we're talking substantial amounts of dialogue. Like Michael Parks had, uh, did a 15 minute fucking performance. Mm-hmm. From end to end and shit like that. Um, with his, cause he just wanted to do his entire sermon as one fucking piece rather than break it up and shit. Yeah. So when you're, when you're kind of, uh, when you're the editor, you're sitting there going, if I was just the guy who was like, I'm not going to be sifting through this material. Someone else will. Let's cover our asses and, and make sure we get enough footage or, or, or do this again. A lot of times I would just be like, it's never going to be better than that. Like that was fucking astounding. Yeah. 
it's all in focus. I can use every piece of that. Fuck it. Let's move on. So there were a lot of times on Red State where I just shot one take, and that saves you so much money, ultimately, like all the way down the line. And it also saves you so much fucking time yeah. at the end of the day. Will you ever go back to shooting on film ever again? That's up to Dave. Like, I'm not a fetishist in either direction. I don't have a strong enough opinion um, in either direction for film or or digital where mm-hmm. I would impose that on him. He's the eyes. He's the the guy who does the heavy lifting. So I leave that up to him. With Red State, we didn't have the money. And also, like, going with the red camera seemed like a good idea. It was lightweight. But letting mobility. the actors just go on and on and not having to... That was fucking phenomenal. Yeah. I loved it to death. It's but the best. Dave, the whole time, like, I would go to him, like, midway through, I'm like, you gotta love the digital now. Dude, this shit looks fucking phenomenal. And he's like, look, it looks great, but, like... As crisp as you think this is, it'll never be as crisp as fucking film. You know, he's like, film is still, he's a purist. He's yeah. one of those fucking dudes. Yeah. But for me, I'm like, oh my God, the ability to just roll and roll and yeah. roll, particularly when you got a dude given a, a performance, like a real performance piece, almost a monologue in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Um, it was, it was nice. And, and just the portability of it. And it yeah. felt, it was the closest I ever felt to clerks. And as much as we shot clerks on an old, Ari SR2, the 16 millimeter camera. And this felt like that. Every other time we've shot stuff, you know, 35 millimeter cameras, everything very pro expensive and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And red is completely pro, but it doesn't, the camera itself is not intimidating in the least. Like even I could fucking pick it up and yeah. I put it right back down so I didn't break it. But I, <laughs> I was very like, it didn't intimidate me like nor like the film cameras normally do. Yeah. Well, I'm never one of those guys who goes, and sits, I mean, I do it when the still photographer wants me to do it. When you go and you sit behind the film camera and you put your eye through the viewfinder, right, right, it's always right. like the, the still photographer wants that shot of the director doing that. Yeah. But like, really, the director has no business ever really looking through the viewfinder himself. No, you know, no. it's sort of a grandstandy kind of thing. It you is. Know? Uh, but, and it know. really displaces the jo- person whose job it is to truly yeah. look through the camera. If, like, <laughs> if I was the operator, I'd be like, can I take a picture sitting in your fucking chair doing nothing? <laughs> I know. Let's I know. Uh, let's. Uh, we got so many people here. Let's let them. Uh, I've been talking to you for a while. We're gonna open up some questions and then uh, head into the movie. Do we have a? You got the cordless mic on you? Is it down there? Um. Uh. Hey, man. You got a question for old Richard Kelly? I do. I I have a comment and I also have a question. Uh, maybe he'll want to comment on my comment. But um, <laughs> my name's Dan Pearson. Um. I'm going to see if I can tackle this, but Southland Tales is so complicated as we've discussed that Mm -hmm. a lot of questions arise that are incredibly complicated. Uh, But my comment is that you guys have been talking about um, like increasing workflow through technology, like being able to edit as you go along, um, being able to use website and graphic novels to tell your story and having this big uh, puzzle kind of for Southland Tales. And to me, I thought that was amazing. Um, because I was a student at the time in Maine studying new media. Mm-hmm. And I always had this professor that was saying, if you're interested in film, you need to be looking to the future of film and where is film going and what's happening. And at the time, you were kind of creating this, uh, as Kevin said, a multi-tiered, multimedia experience where it wasn't just the film. It was kind of like uh, taking you out of this like um, lethargic uh, mode of just kind of sitting down and watching a screen for 90 minutes or two hours and it was kind of like go out and do some research and read these novels and investigate this website and so to me 
that was like new media and that was amazing and I used it a lot in projects to talk about things and use mm -hmm. it as examples. So that was just a comment um, well, thank you. that I had. My, my actual question is, I wanted to ask you about your balls, which... <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in this as well. <laughs> um, yes, they are shaved. No, uh, no, no. no. Um, in Southland Tales, it's been a while. I should have like, caught up and watched it this weekend or something. It's been a little while since I've watched it, but um, one thing that really perplexed me was throughout the film, there are flashing balls, some red, some blue. Mm -hmm. And I never, that was one thing that always kind of perplexed me. I just wasn't sure. I know there's one in the ice cream truck with, mm -hmm. with Christopher Lambert. There's, you know, when um, Dwayne is getting the gun out of the box, um, Rubenstein's holding one on the mm -hmm. staircase. And I was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate or explain. Uh, the mechanical balls have a very clear explanation, but it's only in the graphic novels can one understand what that explanation is, is there's the wireless electricity, which is the big machines in the ocean that are basically, they've found this uh, mysterious elixir of fluid that is this trench called the serpent trench that wraps around the entire core of the earth. They've dug and they've, they're piping this fluid up from the ocean. They're using the ocean tides for when this fluid oxidizes that it it creates an energy field, which is like wireless electricity, the fluid karma fuel system in the movie. Um, those balls are wireless antennas that help um, strengthen the, the energy field in the areas. They're like Wi-Fi antennas for the fluid karma energy field. Um, and so the idea is that people sort of hold them as sort of like magical crystals of power <laughs> that sort of uh, amplify the the wireless electricity that also is the stuff they're injecting in the in the neck that's the pure solution of stuff that Justin Timberlake and everyone is injecting uh, kind of as a drug so they do have an explanation but I don't think anyone would would kind of put all that together with, without the like really digging deep into the multimedia experience and I think even in the graphic novels it's only mentioned very briefly but uh so that's the explanation. All right, thank you. <laughs> this is now part of the multimedia experience. Yes. <laughs> so basically, like, the Southland experience isn't complete until they hear that fucking shit you yeah. just said. <laughs> <laughs> Who else we got? Uh, right here, sir. Go ahead. Hi, my name's uh, Chad Sachs. Hello. Uh, obviously, one of the few people who bought the graphic novels. Oh, thank you. So, uh, what I want to say, comment, and then also a question. Uh, I always viewed Southland Tales as, like, a modern updated version of Gulliver's Travels to mm -hmm. comment on really everything we're going through on like the Jack Black movie that's coming out which looks horrible so um, <laughs> thank, thank you very much because I don't a lot of filmmakers aren't doing anything like that that's really commenting on what's going on right now mm -hmm. and a lot of the things you've picked out and pegged you know two three years ago for Southland Tales have come to fruition today Mm -hmm. the, the one main question I have is you went over uh, how you want to turn the graphic novels more into something uh, like maybe like, a, uh, like another video or, or a cartoon or something. Mm -hmm. How would you go about handling the actual script parts in that? Like, do you have any thought? Because it's you know, a pretty intricate part of um, the graphic novel. In terms of the script elements within the graphic novel? Yes. Because when you see the movie, you see that Dwayne Johnson has written a script called The Power that he's referring to. And there's actually excerpts of the script within the graphic novel and you realize what the origin of the script is really all about, that it's this thing that um, it's, it's, it's this crazy analysis of the book of Revelation. And I've actually, to be honest, 
I've taken the graphic novels and in my spare time, I've actually written a screenplay based on the three graphic novels, which I know sounds a little confusing, but I basically, I took the three graphic novels after having a few years away from them and I streamlined them and I wrote a 120 page screenplay for if I ever one day make an animated film out of the graphic novels, that'll be the screenplay that it's based on. And I would basically handle it as kind of like when, whenever Dwayne is reading the screenplay, whenever Boxer's reading it, you go into his mind and then you see the actors portraying the ridiculousness of what happens in that screenplay with the, the baby and the farting and the earthquakes and just the insanity of the, of the screenplay within the graphic novels. So um, there's, there's a very specific plan that I would have to do that, you know, should that day ever arrive um, when I can, you know, figure out how to bring it all together and, and make it visual. But um, it's, there is, there is a, a sc- another screenplay now in place. It's funny because I wrote scripts that I handed over to Brett Weldley to illustrate into graphic novels. And now I've taken that graphic novel and I've adapted it into a new screenplay that's more streamlined and more coherent. So it's like, it's becoming so meta that I don't even know what's reality anymore. <laughs> like, am I really sitting here? <clears throat> but um, hopefully that answered your question, kind of. But thank you for Sounds your, your awesome, comment. Right. <laughs> I uh, came down here tonight to see this Q&A and, um, and see the movie again. And I was curious, I know you had kind of touched on um, talking about how you'd like to you know, completely finish the movie with the graphic novels and and all that kind of stuff, but I was curious, even with the, the footage that you have now, like the half hour, 45 minutes that was cut from the can, mm-hmm. would that, have you been in talks with Sony at all to even put that out as kind of like a director's cut, just so the people that didn't see that get to see it all, all well, together? Well, there, there is the can cut, which I think has been floating around on the internet or bootlegged, and I think in Europe they actually aired on television, the, th- the issue with the can cut is it just all the CGI is unfinished and there, it's missing effects and stuff like that. And it's just it's hard for me to look at because it's still such a work in progress and like a rough cut. There are scenes in the can cut, some of which with Kevin that were cut and a- all of Janine Garofalo's role. That was Why? Cut. <laughs> well, it's because a lot of your stuff was, no, I know. was, was with Janine. No. And it was the it was the stuff involving the the fluid karma, the energy the big machine out in the ocean and what it's doing. And, and even at the ending, there's supposed to be a lot more CGI that shows what all the crazy stuff happening out in the ocean, like big expensive stuff that I can never afford to do. Um, but it's like that stuff in order to get more money from Sony to finish the movie, I had to cut it down and it became clear that the, most of the Kevin Smith, Janine Garofalo subplot dealing with all the crazy shit happening with the machine out in the ocean that we couldn't afford to do the CGI for anyway was probably going to get cut. There's a whole lot more of that in the graphic novel and in my new script based on the graphic novel that clarifies all that. But um, I haven't quite gone there yet because I feel like I need to I need to direct another movie first. Actually, I need to have a hit movie at some point in my career. <laughs> um, Why? Who needs that? <laughs> before I can ever, you know, and I think... As the technology for animation gets cheaper and you can start to do like motion capture and you can start to, the technology is getting shockingly good. 
at lower budgets with with each year that pass, passes. So, you know, my hope is for one day um, before the actors are too old or before they just don't ever want anything to do with me, uh, that they that they that we could figure out a way to try to put it all together. And um, I think it's it's just a process of like of taking it one step at a time, but. You know, it's it's definitely on, on my to do list, and that's why I went and wrote the script. And you know, I may even like put it online or something for the fans to read, so they can see how I translated the graphic novels, what I added, what I cut, and just sort of I don't know. I think it's fun to it, it's this crazy movie that may never get finished, or it may you know I might be really old by the time it happens. But I think it's just cool to like try to use the internet and try to use these new modes of 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 contact with fans and with with people who do, who do care who are interested to start, to generate a dialogue. So, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, but it's kind of like keeping the experience of the film going without going to the bullshit easy sequel route. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's what people are programmed in this business kind of like, well, they like it, just give them more like that or something. Or make another one just like it. Yeah. But there's a way to extend beyond without just like making a bullshit useless sequel. Yeah. I mean, if a sequel makes sense, by all means do it, but yeah. For something like Southland, yeah, you can kind of keep the story going through this way this way well it's almost like it was reverse engineered that way you know even when we showed up at Cannes, i had the first graphic novel finished but the second and the third were still incomplete and i was running around trying to hand off this graphic novel and everyone was like what the fuck is this you know like everyone you know they didn't want any they didn't understand it and it was just like but please try and read this and no one did but it, it it was like it was reverse engineered almost to have the first three chapters they became very essential, and that's why, like those Roman numerals, when you see the film, it's like, man, it would be so great one day to see those first three chapters um, come to life. But um, you know, that's the that's the wonder wonderful thing about technology and animation and stuff. It's getting um, more and more accessible and and affordable with each passing month. I mean, just the the technology that it, it's like, even in the past three years. I mean, three years ago, we didn't even have uh, even near the the capabilities with with the digital cameras that yeah. exist now. No good. I mean, I mean, that one Canon camera. It's uh, amazing. It's astounding. It looks like a photograph a, cam- a photograph camera, standard yeah. kind of photograph camera you would buy, you know, take on vacation or something like that. A little more pro, high end or something. I, I know a it's guy. actually a fucking film camera. Yeah, like that shoots film. We used it on Red State. Uh, uh, Dave was saying in the previous podcast about fifteen percent of the movie was shot on that. Yeah, I, I know a guy who who went to Afghanistan with one of them, uh-huh. built a Steadicam rig, and was running through combat in Afghanistan as bullets were flying. And I saw some of the footage that he's assembled into a documentary, which I hope gets into Sundance, but. It looks like a Terrence Malick film. Really? It looks like footage from a Terrence Malick film. It's so beautiful, but it's real. And it's in combat in Afghanistan. And it's like, he had a Steadicam mount wow. in, 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 in the middle of a war. I mean, it's, it's really, um, you know, it, it, the technology just changes every month. There's something new, a new piece of hardware out there. So we'll see. Hello, my name is Fernando. Uh, Hello. I had a question about the actors in the film. Uh-huh. Um, I, I got an invite to go watch the film, and I looked at everyone who was on it, and no disrespect, but 
I was like, nah, not really interested. But then I read the bottom and it said director of Donnie Darko. I was like, okay, then I'll go watch it. I watched it and I loved it. And I read the graphic novels and I love them too. But and I love Highlander because for Lambert's in it and mm -hmm. Lovitz is in it. Um, was that intentional to have all those people that? I mean, I would I wouldn't take all those people seriously. I guess like I wouldn't like I'm not going to go watch Faster where The Rock's coming out with. Okay. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. uh, but it worked. Like it really worked to have all those people in there. I felt like I was kind of blindsided by all those actors who I wouldn't normally take seriously in all those roles. Was was that intentional or? Well, I I, I very specifically wanted to cast the film like a piece of pop art. I wanted it to be I wanted to be very aggressively unpretentious with the way that I cast the film in the sense that I wanted people who had a had their place in some other aspect of pop culture. Um obviously I thought I think everyone in the, in the film is extremely talented. I I cast them because I knew that about them and I knew, knew that they could deliver for me. But I, but I, I liked that, you know, Dwayne had his place in pro wrestling and that Sarah had her place you know, in television with Buffy and that Sean had you know, done American Pie and had the Stifler, you know, that they all had baggage from all of these places, you know. I, 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 baggage, I guess. Yeah, and from Saturday Night Live, a lot of people who had done SNL. And, um, and I thought that there was something fun about getting everyone into this political satire. And, and I just, I was very aggressive with kind of reaching out into those worlds and finding Christopher Lambert and Zelda Rubinstein, and all these people who have done wonderful, wonderful work, and whether it's genre pictures or, or comedies or action films, stuff that people don't necessarily take seriously. It's not um, people tend to turn their nose up a little bit about a, a lot of the work that these actors have done. But I, I, I wanted to be aggressively unpretentious about casting them, and then have it all come together. You know, because it, it was a film about the sort of the the most vulgar future part of America that we could imagine, you know, and this sort of polarized uh, political landscape, and we're in World War Three, and there's porn stars, and um, and it's just this incredibly vulgar pop experience. But then I wanted it to be very beautiful, and I wanted the Moby music in there, and I it was just this vision that I had. So. Um, that's still one of the things that I, I, I'm proud of because I, I love all the actors in the movie and I, I am incredibly you know, proud to have gotten to work with them. And but just getting them to can and getting them to walk on the red carpet was just like, that was one of the things that I'll never, ever, um, probably ever get to do again is to walk the red carpet with all those actors at can, you know, which is a very pretentious place, you know. And so... Um, that, but that was absolutely part of the design. So, I've been wanting to watch another Christopher Lambert movie that I liked for a long time, so thanks. Yeah, Christopher Lambert was great, and he's, he's an amazing guy. He's an amazing guy. Uh, well, so. sir, you are one of the good ones, and what's nice about you is you swing for the fucking fences. That's the most important thing. A lot of people out there just kind of go and execute, and you you're not content to just simply execute. You got to try something big. You got to you got to go big or go home. And thank yeah. God you've gone big each time. And and uh, you don't need a fucking hit, but I'm sure it's fucking coming. It would be nice to get that phone call that Chris Nolan gets. You know. <laughs> 
Chris, no, the Chris Nolan phone call, I don't think we have, our heads would explode if we received it. Because I'm sure after the opening of Dark Knight, they were just like, you're allowed to sacrifice human beings now. <laughs> One day it'll be, we'll get that phone call. Yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. for coming out tonight. Uh, thank you, Richard, for, for sitting around and chit-chatting. And now, boy, we got the movie to look at. If you're at home listening to this, uh, when it ends, go watch the movie like the people here. Uh, pick up the fucking book. You they can find it on Amazon, right? Yeah, Amazon. It's hard to find it at any bookstore. So uh, the yeah. Southland Tales? Southland Tales, the prequel saga. And uh, uh, hopefully one day it'll it'll evolve into something else, but we'll see. <laughs> but peep it out now, man. Thanks for being here tonight, and thank you all, and enjoy the show. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Find more funny shit like this at Smodcast.com. Scott, I'm here to talk about the Smodcast Podcast Network. There's so many to choose from. What? <laughs> People love the so many to choose from. What is that? Who is that guy? That's the fan in me. Right. Who's so excited right. about all the choices I have. Scott Slosier. Because yeah, he yeah. sounds kind of slow. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many to choose from. He's, he's probably, he might be a little dense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a little excited. He doesn't have a hell of a lot to say, but yeah, what he yeah. says is important. Yeah. Um, all right. So it's me and that guy. So it's me and that guy. It's me and Scott Slosier. Okay. Doing smart, <laughs> doing smartcast. Ready? Okay. Um, welcome to smartcast. I'm Kevin Smith. There's so many to choose from. Uh, yeah. How are you, Scott Slosier? There's so many to choose from. Uh, how do you decide which dick you want to put in your mouth? There's so many to do. <laughs> Trapped. <laughs> and I prove I'm intellectually superior to Scott Slosier once again. Um, that's the kind of shit you can enjoy on the Smodcast Podcast exactly. Network. People trapping the dim-witted. <laughs> <laughs> Me reduced down to a, a soft brain person who can only say one thing. Um, the Smodcast Podcast Network. Go check out all the shows, man. Smodcast, tell them Steve, Dave. Jay and Silent Bob get old. Puck nuts, blowhard, highlands, a peephole's history, and Hollywood Babylon. Man, there's just a plethora, as they say. A bunch of shows. How else, how else could one describe it, Scott? There's so many to choose from. <laughs>